Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Yanis Varoufakis. Yanis Varoufakis is an economist and politician. He served as the Greek Minister of Finance from January to July 2015. In February 2016, he launched the Democracy in Europe movement, 2025DM25. Now it's time for comments. All right, listen, here are some comments on the Jimmy Dore episode, which we very much enjoyed. It was a very successful episode for us. We're very happy with it. Love Jimmy Dore. Leon Martel says, everyone who watches Jimmy and Russell, you know you're on the right side of history. You can just feel it. Thanks. JB Charm, I'm a conservative, but I enjoy watching Jimmy because he gets it. He will reach an issue and tell you the truth, even if it's to his own detriment, because in the end, the truth knows no political affiliation. Yeah. Jimmy has the stones to say things. I'm going to do this in American accent. Jimmy's, Jimmy has the stones to say things that ev things everybody is afraid to speak about for the fear of alienation, demonization, demonetization, and cancellation. Even though I don't agree with some of his more liberal policies, I still respect the fact that he speaks the truth on a lot of important topics. If conservatives, liberals, independents, and libertarians come together and focus more on what we have in common as opposed to what we don't, I think this world would be a much better place. And that's from J.B. Charm. And I agree with you, J.B. Charm particularly this idea of coming together. Maybe we need to start abandoning these labels because I don't know that they're helping <laughs> I us. I thought you were saying maybe we should start a band. Should we start a band? <laughs> I am actually... It's abandoning, but I don't know if we should start a band. You, you, that, that, but I was about... Hardly any time later that I went, maybe we should start a band in Ning. No, but... It's not very long before Ning. I listen to this podcast and it's like I hear what you say before you say it. Well, I, I don't say it's start a band. <laughs> I, reply, I reply too quickly to your questions. Yeah, but I don't say start a band ever, do I? One of the questions is never, should we start a band? I think. <laughs> I'm always saying start a band and think something about preconception. I never say, let's start a band. Jen, you can be on bass. Do you want? I would be lead guitar. Would you? Yes. Have you been practising? No, but... Well, then how can you possibly... bass? Yeah, what's wrong with bass? Is it because you think, oh, women in a band play bass? I don't have a prejudice <laughs> yeah. about that, mm. actually. I just thought that's what you did play. <laughs> no. I don't think women in bands play bass. That's Does, a stereotype. That do do? That's a stereotype. Pick pixies. I'm just doing space. Bum, 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 bum. All right, be lead guitar, Jen, in a, a band that's only going to exist until I get to the next syllable of Ning. Listen to shout outs. And this is a listener shout out, shout out to June Mc McIntosh. I love your podcast so much. I bought my daughter a subscription to Luminary so she can listen to you. Cheers from Pennsylvania. June, thank you so much. I've been to Pennsylvania. I love you and I'm very grateful to you for that compliment. Well, actually, before we go, I want to tell you that I'm on tour and I really want you to come and see me in Carlisle, Blackpool, Glasgow, Plymouth. There's all sorts of gigs. There's a link in the description or go russellbrand.com to get your tickets, please. Uh, and also sign up to my mailing list at russellbrand.com while you're over there because uh, then I can tell you everything and I hope you're watching all of my YouTube videos and all. All right, now time for Yanis Varoufakis. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Yanis, thank you for joining me on Under the Skin. Well, thank you, Russell. We need to do this. It's, you know, it's a dirty job. Someone's got to do it. Talk about Ukraine. We've got to talk about Ukraine. We've got to talk about 
a new approach to populist politics. You're more experienced than almost anybody uh, uh, what a version of left-wing populism might look like, particularly in success. We have to talk about... Um, like, I'll just tell you, firstly, where, like, you know, what's sort of been going on with me and, like, and my own... Because I feel like it, perhaps it will give you some sort of different platform because I know this is something you're discussing at length and it falls upon you a lot to discuss this stuff. And thank you again for coming on. I love you coming on. I love you in general. And thanks for coming on for the third time. Um, so, Yanis, right... This is what, like, you know, obviously, like, obviously, when there's an invasion of a country, you feel like, oh God, war, people are going to die. This is so pointless. Then you hear, like, okay, well, what's the history of that region with regard to NATO? Is there a historic claim to certain aspects of Ukrainian territory or populations within Ukraine? Then you hear about, you know, the sort of resource aspect of things, the pipelines and all of that, and and even um, mumblings and rumours of elements within Ukrainian government that are not favorable or extreme right you know some people have said uh, like all of these elements none of which mitigates the horror and tragedy of invasion and war the reason i wanted to speak to you so i saw a tweet you said where, where you said washington should just pledge not to expand nato or ever invade, invade ukraine and russia should immediately withdraw like where you said like there there's a simple thing that perhaps people could get behind i've heard like people particularly on the left like and i i'm really curious about this it's like there's an existing culture war rubric that wants immediate simplification, that wants villains and victims, that wants pat tropes and trite phrases and things that can be posted on Instagram and as if that is the resolution, that everything is being passed through some like some dumb filter of idiocy. Uh, but I've also heard people like, you know, like on the left saying, Russia is serious, Putin is a serious dude, this could be an imperialist project, and Russia could be under the stewardship of a madman. This could be legitimately and genuinely a global threat. So, <laughs> with all that in mind, I hand over the podcast to you, Yanis Varoufakis. See you in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you won't abandon me so quickly. <laughs> Look, uh, first things first, when there is an invasion, we must always take the side of the people who are facing troops with direct orders to violate their homes, to bombard their neighborhoods, to destroy the circumstances of their lives. Uh, and I say that um, without any hesitation and unconditionally. This is not something that our Western rulers do. I say this regarding the Ukrainians. When I see Ukrainians in Kharkiv, for instance, putting together uh, a Molotov cocktails by which defend their homes from the advancing Russian tanks, I applaud them. But our rulers applaud them while at the same time, when there is a 15-year-old kid in Kalkidia, in the Palestinian territories, uh, throwing a stone at an advancing bulldozer with the intent to demolish his home, they call him a terrorist. So we make no such uh, distinctions. We support the defenders of their homes, of their neighborhoods, of their communities. So today we stand with Ukraine. Unconditional, no ifs, no buts, no, no conditionalities attached. Um, to help Ukrainians, 
at this very moment in time, we need to apply the same moral compass. University, making the distinctions between fashionable, deserving victims in the Ukraine and unfashionable victims in Yemen, where only 48 hours ago, I don't know whether you noticed that, Russell, or our viewers noticed it, there were 37 sorties by Saudi Arabian bombers taking out civilians in Yemen. Not in the news, unfashionable victims, who cares about them? Uh, my simple point is that to support the Ukrainian victims of Russian aggression, you have to support the Yemen victims of Saudi aggression. If you don't do that, then you, this is the greatest gift to Putin. Because you know, he says, okay, well, your fashionable victims are unfashionable in Moscow. I don't give a damn about them. And then, then you, you enter a, a relativizing narrative uh, regarding which victims are you know, deserving and which ones are undeserving. Moving on to something else you said, which um, is, you know, a crucial point. Let's forget about our little ideologies at the moment. When there are people who are dying, their circumstances, their situation must prevail and must trump our own political projects, whether it is my political project, your political project, or NATO's political project. So the question now is, how do you stop the carnage? How do we get the Russian troops to withdraw back to their bases? And how do the Ukrainians get a chance to fight it out amongst each other, not with weapons, but with the power of arguments between the leftists and the rightists, between the communists in the Ukraine and the Nazis? And there are Nazis in Ukraine. This is not a reason to bomb Ukraine. In this country, in my country, at some point, the Nazi organization called Golden Dawn was the third largest party. So what? You bomb Greece because we have the serpent's egg hatching in our midst? No. What you do is you create the circumstances for democratic politics uh, in Greece, in the Ukraine, in Yemen, to fight, you know, Islamist fundamentalism, Nazism, fascism, you know, Boris Johnson, whatever. <laughs> um, so how do we get the Russian troops out of them? NATO is not proposing to invade, uh, and that's a good thing, because if NATO invaded now uh, in support of the Ukrainians, we would have third world war. Uh, and you know, climate change wouldn't get a chance. We would have uh, destroyed the planet before climate change was completed. Um, so NATO is not going to go there and support the Ukrainians. Uh, I, I have a serious moral problem here, Russell, because I think that you know, I, my heart is when I see the Ukrainian resistance fighters putting up a great struggle and preventing the Russian tanks from entering Kiev, you know, I celebrate with them. But I know who Putin is. Putin is a ruthless killer. He proved that in the early 2000s, when in 2000, when he flattened Grozny, he destroyed a city of 250, 300,000 people in Chechnya. Uh, just in order to solidify his hold over the Russian government. Uh, he's perfectly capable of turning, like, like he turned Grozny to, into Dresden, turning Kiev into Dresden. Uh, so I shudder to think if he does it. So the more our Ukrainian comrades resist his army, the more likely it is that, they, that we are going to have that. I'm not suggesting that they should stop resisting. If I were them, I would keep fighting, you know, come what may, even if he flattens the city. But we, from where we are, from the comfort of our, of our own home or studio or whatever, 
um, we have a moral imperative to try to find a solution, a solution that we could sell to uh, Putin that saves all these tens of or hundreds of thousands of people in the Ukraine and gives them a chance to breathe and a chance for democracy and a chance for independence. Now, the question is, what is there anything that Putin would buy <laughs> as part of such a deal? And I think there is. I think that Putin is ruthless and a killer and a war criminal, Chechnya, right? <laughs> uh, but he's not dumb. Uh, he's a highly trained strategist for the KGB. He knows that he cannot occupy the Ukraine forever. He knows that he's going to have something worse than Vietnam in his hands. He knows that the Russian economy is smaller than the economy of Texas, by the way, in terms of gross domestic product. I don't know what you either. Smaller than the economy of Texas. Uh, he doesn't have the funds to continue. He, he, he has the funds to continue to do a lot of damage to the Ukrainians, okay, to destroy a whole generation. But he cannot hold Ukraine. And he cannot hold Russia if he continues, you know, along the lines of a modern Afghanistan for five, six, seven, eight years. So he's looking for a way out. And even if he's not looking for a way out today, he will be looking for a way out next week. And what is this way out that we can offer him, which is consistent with the interests of the Ukrainians and the rest of the world? Um, imagine if there was uh, an offer by President Biden, uh, because the European Union doesn't count. They're just the lackeys of the, of the US. I mean, they, and we don't have a leadership in the European Union anyway. But Biden could um, have hold a summit with, uh, with uh, Putin and a quid pro quo could emerge. The quid pro quo being very simple. Russia withdraws from, uh, from uh, Ukraine. There is an agreement for the demilitarization of Donbass and the region around the borders between Ukraine and uh, Russia. Uh, there can be some bargaining regarding particular plots of land, Crimea and so on. And both Russia and the United States guarantee the neutrality and independence of Ukraine. Uh, anybody who says that, that, oh, that's giving in to Putin will have to answer, what is the alternative? The alternative is carnage, a prolonged occupation, the div permanent division of the Ukraine in the long run, and the toxification of politics both in the Ukraine and in Russia. And allow me to finish. Since you, you gave me the floor, so I'll take advantage of your, your very kind offer. Look, um, amongst all this um, unpleasantness and uh, distress that we all feel, um, I had some fantastic news today. Uh, the Progressive International, which is this body that we set up with Bernie Sanders back in 2018, and now has we have organizations representing something like 200 million people around the world, um, we received uh, a letter signed by several organizations of Russian socialists from Moscow, from St. Petersburg. And allow me to read um, just a few extracts, I won't bore you too much, uh, of what they say. So these are Russians in Russia today, not emigres, in Russia today, taking huge, huge risks, writing this and sending this to us and asking us to publish it. So here we go. We are told, they say, that the opponents of this war are hypocrites and that they stand not against the war, but for the West. This is a lie. This is Russian speaking. We have never been supporters of the United States and its imperialist policies. When Ukrainian troops shelled Donetsk and Luhansk, these are the 
eastern provinces with quite a few Russian speakers in the Ukraine that uh, were sort of um, annexed, quasi-annexed by Putin in 2014. We were not silent, say the Russians, nor will we be silent now when Kharkov, Kiev and Odessa are being bombed on the orders of Putin and his Kamarilla, his entourage. There are so many reasons to fight against the war. For us advocates of social justice, equality and freedom, they are especially important. This is an invasion. No threat to the Russian state exists. But go on, I won't bore you reading the whole paragraph. This war produces incalculable disasters for our peoples. Both Ukrainians and Russians are paying for it dearly with their blood. Long after the dust has settled, poverty, inflation and unemployment will affect everyone, and they continue. This war will turn Ukraine into rubble and Russia into a prison. This is Russians speaking. The opposition media have already been shut down in Russia. People are placed behind bars. Soon, Russians will have only one choice, and that is to rise up or prison. This war multiplies all the risks and threats to our country. Russia, they mean. Even Ukrainians, who a week ago sympathized with Russia, are now enlisting in the militia to fight our troops. Finally, fighting for peace is the patriotic duty of every Russian, not only because we are the custodians of the memory of the worst war in history, Second World War, when 20 million Russians died, or Soviets, but also because this war threatens the integrity and very existence of Russia. And they finish off with this beautiful paragraph. Putin is seeking to connect his own fate with the fate of our country. If he succeeds, then his inevitable defeat will be the defeat of the entire nation. Then we may indeed face the fate of post-war Germany, occupation, territorial division, the cult of collective guilt. There's only one way to prevent these catastrophes. We ourselves, the men and women of Russia, have to stop this war. This country belongs to us, not to a handful of distraught old men with palaces and yachts. It is time to take it back. Our enemies are not in Kiev and Odessa, but in Moscow. It is time to kick them out. War is not Russia. War is Putin and his regime. That is why we, Russian socialists and communists, are against this criminal war. We want to stop it in order to save Russia. No to intervention, no to dictatorship, no to poverty. Russell, that was the best news I've had since the beginning of this invasion. Oh. Reading this piece. It's so beautiful, Yanis, because it reminds us of something that becomes increasingly obscured when we live with the continual inveiglement of our own pervasive media that actually and for always the majority of people do not want and neither do they benefit from war, that we live under the convenient synecdoche of nation and think that we are talking about a country of hundreds of millions of people, when in fact, as with the United States or with the United Kingdom or with European nations such as your own, we are primarily dealing with the interest, interests of an intersection of elite economic interests, corrupt politicians, history, the complexity that comes with so many vectors. And to be reminded that there is a conversation, a discourse that can be undertaken where we say our brothers and sisters in Russia, our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, our brothers and sisters in the United States, can we look for an alternative way of running our lives? 
decentralized power where possible, confederacy necessary, the ability to regulate and control the oppressive forces that continually lead us here. Even in, uh, in, within that letter, you feel, don't you, and I can see it's touched you in a, obviously it touched you in a similar way, because otherwise why would you have read it? But that kind of nascent hope, because obviously my next question would be, honestly, how do we prevent these situations continually and inevitably arising from the narcissistic solipsistic perspective of a westerner uh, by which i mean we are not being bombed we are not under attack we feel oh wow the pandemic starts to recede and <laughs> now it's world war three that this endless blade of fear just driving us into sort of this solitary, lonely hopelessness. And how is it ever going to, how are events that, you know, the, with war, it unfolds on such a scale that you feel like, well, I don't know what to do. I don't understand the history of Russia and Ukraine. But you hear something like that and you feel like, oh, there's people. They're people. This is, I know what people are. I am a person. And it's sort of it's very heartening to see that. How do you, what do you take practically? And obviously, given your construction or uh, affiliation with and presumed um, collaboration and uh, in, uh, inception of this progressive uh, international, what do you see as being the kind of alliances that could be formed in order to uh, act as a counterpoint to the, what seem to most people like inevitable like inevitable crises such as war? How, how do you start to augment opposition to such a massive phenomenon it's a very good question and you know what i don't have an answer to this uh you know our progressive international does have millions of members but we are divided too i have to be absolutely frank about this uh because you know it is really very easy once the sounds of war begin to create a cacophony that covers everybody everything else it's really very easy to divide. It's really very easy uh, to uh, force people against their better judgment to take sides, to you know, say, either if you're not with NATO, uh, then you are with Putin. And if you're not with Putin, you are with NATO. Uh, Russell, we have the left know this. We've known this um, for decades, for a century, actually, more than a century. Uh, they the left lost the plot uh, right at the commencement of the Great War, World War I, when we were divided between leftists who um, understood that World War I was a pointless capitalist, imperialist war between two empires that were, were working against the interests of the people in Britain, the people in France, the people in Germany, that, you know, the trench warfare of the first, what was the point of the First World War? Nothing. You know, there were no principles at stake. It was just mass carnage produced by rampant imperialisms clashing. Uh, and the left back then, you know, if, you, if you want, I mean, I, I feel as a lefty, I have to say that, uh, all the ills of the world are the result of our fault. We, the left, are responsible for everything because we failed. We were supposed to be to bring civilization, brotherhood, sisterhood, and solidarity. And all we did was we created the gulag and, you know, interminable fights between the left. But that started 
the moment the First World War began. We had the major schism of the left, of the Second Internationale, the Second International, between those you know, Marxists, socialists in Germany, for instance, who ended up supporting the German army and the German campaign against the Entente. And you had you know, the British left uh, also supporting the other side. Uh, many communists split up from that and said, we're not supporting either side. That was the Bolsheviks, right? Uh, who in the end won the war and the, the war, the war, the revolution, the October Revolution 1917, and withdrew Russia from the Great War. But then, very, very quickly, because of the war of aggression against the socialist regime, the Soviet regime, the early Leninist regime, uh, then, you know, Stalin emerged as a result of the split of the left um, in Russia, in Europe, in Germany. You had a split between the communists and social democrats falling in different camps. Uh, so, you know, we, we know about all this. We know how war can divide the people who are supposed to end the circumstances that give rise to war the left. Um, and it's happening again with the Ukraine. So um, you asked, you know, how do we create this solidarity? I, I have spent all day today. Uh, I'm just, since we're chatting, I might as well bring my personal perspective of today, uh, trying to convince uh, comrades in Latin America that, um, uh, yes, NATO created the circumstances for the war in Ukraine, but Putin chose to be brutal and to invade, and NATO did not force him to do it. So you know, today I spent quite a bit of time trying to convince comrades in Latin America, trade unionists, that no, we must not take sides with Russia, that Russia is the aggressor. NATO created the circumstances, but Putin made the choice of this brutal war. And we, the progressive international, must not take sides in the same way than the Great War. Um, in the 1910s, we should not have taken the side, either of the one side or the other, one imperialism or the, the other. In the spirit of the letter from the socialists in Russia, we must create an alliance of progressives, of workers, of students, of intellectuals, of, um, of those who actually treasure peace over war you know, in Russia, in the Ukraine, in the United States, in Latin America, everywhere. It's um, easier said than done. But, you know, as Tony Benn, my great mentor from way back, used to say, every generation is condemned to fight the same good cause again and again and again. And there's no final defeat and there's no final victory. I have to keep going. It's interesting that Tony Blair's, excuse me, forgive me. <laughs> Don't mention that man. <laughs> I'm waiting for him to turn up around this, by the way. I'm waiting for him to turn up and say, you know, this is uh, an invasion of a sovereign territory and there's no excuse. So, like, he, he won't be able to resist it. But at the moment, people are saying, Tony, no, not this one. Not this one. You, you can't comment. You can't comment. But eventually, the ego will rise and Tony will have to condemn Putin's actions and then we'll be ready with the response. We will. <laughs> but uh, Tony Benn's uh, allusion to the mythic uh, fascinates me here, uh, both in terms of the Sisyphean aspect of the struggle but also the deeper personal 
heroic necessity for the mm, uh, ongoing fight, the idea that the, I don't know, the baton or the sword is passed on. I wonder, Yanis, as a an educated and awakened Greek man, how much the uh, mythic thought impacts your understanding of politics, the necessity, in my view, for an ulterior ideology that underwrites our principles. We have talked before about how mm, solidari solidarity is another way of saying oneness, that fraternity is another way of saying uh, love and uh, a, a familial connection. I felt for a long time the uh, bureaucratic, cold, rationalist and economically underwritten language of, of communism, the kind of communism that we've been discussing in the first part of our conversation, has led to something that... Um, and also the, the placing of labor and work at the core of the human experience and which becomes increasingly, I don't want to say, dubious at, uh, given the march of progress and the way that the world is altering um, is something that needs to be addressed. So there's two things. One, the kind of dryness of it, the dryness of the language and the sort of the, the, sort of the, the lack of romance, for want of a better word. Um, like, you know, like say, for example, that time you told me that thing, who are we not to say anything? Who am I not to say anything? When you said that woman outside parliament that time, just before Saritza kicked off, you know, this spirit, spirit, like how do we embrace and bring to the forefront these ideas when the left is traditionally economically undergirded and is now now more than ever, politics is dominated by kind of technocratic, banal and, uh, and banalizing language. How do we invest it with power? How do we make our rhetoric appealing? How do we make our stories vivify people, touch them in the reality of their lives rather than in the sort of cold rationalism that often dominates this sphere? Well, you are, uh, you know, um, you're giving a, a fantastic opportunity to absolutely identify with your, well, how shall I say, loathing of the traditional way that the left has uh, reduced a beautiful project into a materialistic and procedural. Um, allow me to, 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 to go, to hark back to, you know, my country's mythological tradition, because you mentioned Sisyphus. Uh, Sisyphus is, is a very dire uh, metaphor in the sense that if people out there watching and listening, especially young people, think that the task of changing the world and resisting evil is Sisyphean, well, we've lost. Because nobody wants to be Sisyphus. I don't want to be Sisyphus. I don't want to be pushing the boulder up the hill only to, to see it come back down again. So I will use another metaphor, another mythological parable, um, that of Prometheus, who um, uh, knows that uh, Zeus has banned him from uh, bringing fire and therefore knowledge and technology to humanity. And yet he steals fire from Olympus and brings it to humanity. And with fire comes light, comes enlightenment, comes technology, comes uh, knowledge, comes writing and so on. And Zeus... Um, punishes him for having uh, betrayed the monopoly of the gods. 
So he has him tied up on a rock. He's a vulture eating his liver and also condemns him to permanent pain uh, because his liver regenerates all the time. He doesn't die. And therefore, the vulture keeps eating at his liver uh, in perpetuity. Uh, in the end, according to Hesiod, who wrote this story, this is who has conveyed this story to us, uh, in the end, Prometheus, even though it was an almost eternal torture, in the end, he is released. And we remember him to this day as somebody who suffered for the betterment of humanity. I think that's a good myth. And especially if you move from Hesiod to Aeschylus, the great tragedian, who actually wrote a play out of it. And the play adds, I think you would love it, this con con combination of Hesiod and, and Aeschylus, because Hesiod is a bit like, you know, the Communist Party account, dry, boring, you know, this is what Prometheus did, you know, let's celebrate him. And then the, 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 this, the, the, the playwright comes, Aeschylus, and give, makes it, turns into poetry. And Prometheus uh, has his tantrums, he's got his moments of doubt, like Christ on the cross. He's got his um, existentialist angst that he thinks, what an idiot I was to do this. And then he recovers his own. So in other words, my message to young people is this is not Sisyphean. This is brilliant that, you know, this struggle is fun, folks. You know, if you don't participate in this struggle, your life is going to be absolutely boring. It's not worth living. People ask me, what keeps me going? And I say that, you know, doing this, being in politics, you know, an activist on the street, talking to young people as a 61-year-old, right, um, keeps me alive. I wake up in the morning and I, I can't wait. Uh, I, you know, I read wonderful texts like the one from the Russian socialists that I read out to you. My heart um, is revived in ways that no reality show can um, offer me. Um, no, I mean, even when I read the Wall Street Journal through the eyes of the people out there who are organizing against the war in Ukraine, against uh, Goldman Sachs, against... Uh, you know, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in your country and so on. You know, even then, seeing all these texts through the lens of, you know, stopping the bastards, working, uh, you know, for people whom I will never meet in Latin America. It's a great life. It's much more fun than doing anything else. Unless we convey this sense of fun, we are lost. And it will be a waste because it is a great it's great fun. It's a great life that we're leading, being on the barricades. The reason that I am, I suppose, placing some cartilage between a potentially mythic undergirding of communist or socialist or leftist ideals and the challenges that the left faces in a post-industrialist age is because if there is not a robust, motivating myth that is connected to sincere and I would say explicit and po perhaps even poeticized emotions and states, human states, then the challenge is that as culture apparently alters as a result of advancing technology and the evident, um, at least 
superficial and perhaps fundamental changes that come with that, that the ideology itself may become uh, desiccated and um, moribund. So, so like, because if you look at it plainly like an, an ideology that's a sort of a response to industrialization and the and you know nineteenth and twentieth century capitalism, or in anticipation of twentieth century capitalism, like, and and how that you can see, and and of course now with the additional burden of Maoist and post-Maoist China and the failure of the Soviet Union, you it seems like people are you know like i consume a lot of right-wing media because it, a lot of right-wing media is like better especially in sort of on, on, on yeah in online spaces in particular i have a subscription to the daily telegram <laughs> yeah. what else can I say? wall street journal and financial times <laughs> Yeah, you sort of feel like, and it is comparable to in the online space. A lot of comment right wing, right, a lot of right wing commentators, until they talk about, you know, I don't know, well, God, until they talk about homelessness, immigration, race, like in some some areas that like you would anyone would pretty easily predict. What they have is, in my view, particularly at the moment, because of the failings of the left that we've already touched upon, and perhaps we'll investigate further in a more contemporary sense, rather than the sort of very uh, the nascent problems that you uh, unpacked for us rather beautifully earlier. What what they have is, I would say, a rather more priapic and uh, vibrant discourse about around populism, around trust, around the problems of mainstream media, cronyism. You know, the way that the pandemic has been handled. And what I'm saying is, is I see an opportunity as right wing populism is on the rise for a revivified, re libidinized left to re-engage people. I, you know, again, I suppose we saw, you know, you're obviously more familiar with me than what happened around Corbyn and what happened around Bernie. And 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 of course, how that was subsequently handled and quashed in both instances. You obviously know better than anyone what you know Syriza and Podemos Podemos represented after the sort of you know two thousand eight events. I feel that now the sort of post-Trump, post-Brexit territory, and obviously I'm pretty ignorant around other areas of Europe, and God knows there's a war on, etc. But it seems to me that culturally, there is a fissure a space emerging because a lot of people feel politically homeless because the mm, the priorities of the what you might call the liberal left the professional media left have become i think um deracinated and i do not like it, it's pretty clear that the professional media class hate working class people that's the main thing that comes across from brexit and trump they don't like working class people i don't like people that drive vans and people that put flags outside their house and people that sort of like you know go to football matches and i mean that in both countries and i, I see an opportunity a real opportunity 
this is where I think the growth is going to come from because the left has ceded too much territory and the right in the end can't take it because in the end the, we know what the alliances and intentions of the the right are, the, the, the corporate intentions, the financial intentions and relationships. I think that there, this is a wonderful opportunity aside from the issues we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. I feel that there's real scope and I wonder what you feel about re-engaging those communities and also somewhat how it connects to both that mythic stuff we were talking about and how ethno-nationalism serves that job so perfectly at the moment and needs to somehow be replaced. And yeah, I think that's enough of a question, Jesus. The great um, paradox is that on the one hand, when it comes to the real issues, we have won. Uh, you and I have participated recently. We're part of a fantastic campaign in the United Kingdom the Save Your NHS campaign, um, which has gone really remarkably well uh, to the extent that it forced only yesterday a debate in the House of Lords, uh, a debate on how to reverse privatization of the NHS in Britain. You know, this is a major success because the Labour Party was not pushing for that. It was a movement that we led. You know, we, when I say we, I mean thousands of people led uh, from the ground up uh, and you can see that we have 80% of the people in the United Kingdom on our side when it comes to this. And this is a purely socialist project. You know, the NHS is a socialist project. That's why they hate it. That's why they've been trying for decades to un annul it, to undo it, to privatize it, to usurp it, and so on. Uh, so you see that, we, we, I mean, even in the general election, the disastrous general election of 2019, when my great friend Jeremy Corbyn was pulverized the day after. Uh, nevertheless, his manifesto won the day. The manifesto of the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn was far more acceptable, popular than anything the Tories said. Even Keir Starmer, in order to move into the leadership chair of the Labour Party, fraudulently adopted that very radical manifesto of uh, the Corbynistas. So our ideas are doing really very well in society, not just in Britain, in Greece, in Germany, in France, everywhere. Where we fail is in creating an electoral wing to this movement, <laughs> a political party. The polit established political parties are notorious for being co-opted in a process of um, uh, effectively bidding for the sympathy and the approval and the endorsement of the oligarchy. That was the case, is the case with the Labour Party in Britain, it was the case with Syriza that I participated in. So the question is, how do you, how do we turn the success of progressive ideas and policies amongst the people? the popularity of those ideas into power. That is the problem. That, is, that has always been the problem, right? Um, I don't have a ready-made answer for you. Uh, I, one of a, the great uh, impediments to succeeding in that is nationalism, is nativism. Here in Greece, for instance, we started a new party, Mera 25. We got into parliament uh, with the principles that you and I share. Uh, I can tell you the greatest obstacle to our success is um, the Greek-Turkish feud. Uh, 
nationalism, nationalist Greeks versus nationalist Turks. Uh, the last two summers, there was nearly a war in the Aegean, nearly a war in the Aegean. Our navies clashed in the Aegean. We were seconds away from missiles flying. And immediately you see, you feel this clamping up of people who supported our ideas, our policies and so on. And they fall behind the parapet of right-wing nationalism. Uh, we, so what's happening in the Ukraine is happening everywhere. Um, it's happening in Britain, as we speak, in the United States. People are rallying around the flag. We have an enemy, Putin. So, you know, forget the NHS. If we need to sacrifice it and buy a few more frigates, we'll do that. That, that So, you know, nationalism, uh, warmongering have always been fantastic allies of those who uh, try and mostly succeed in arresting the popularity of ideas that would otherwise win the day, like the idea of a socialist healthcare system. Um, I don't have any secret formula for you know, succeeding <laughs> in this tussle, um, just continuing with hard work. And maybe the one insight I can bring is that I find it here in Greece because we're doing reasonably well, reasonably well um, in the last year or so, even during the pandemic, people, respond well to members of political parties that don't like political parties and who only become members of political parties because if they don't, then you know the parties that, that rule the roost are <laughs> of the very unsavory kind. So we need people that take leadership positions in the same way you and I take the rubbish out at night. Um, in other words, something you have to do, it's a dirty job, you don't want if you if you really love doing it, you should see your shrink. But somebody's going to do it. That's how we should, you know, run for office. Anybody who really wants office should not be allowed to run for office. <laughs> I think people, especially youngsters, respond to this quite well. I agree that you're right, and of course, because it, a professional career, the last you know, I don't know thirty years, you would be better, obviously, again, better qualified to say. But because there is now an understanding that it's a professional class of politicians, that there's a, a pathway and we know where that pathway leads, that there's a period in office, then there's subsequent office, and this doesn't matter if you're Obama or Blair or Brown or Bush or who, maybe not Gordon Brown so much, bless him, but like, but like, but like generally speaking, it's understood that people are part of larger organizations the number of people that was given tutelage and apprenticeship by the wef and davos that there is a an impression a sense that these ideas are generated at the level of globalists and that are, and then disseminated like like trudeau merkel even putin with their affiliation to the wef i know that sometimes these territories feel conspiratorial but we've, there's been so much content and evidence that it's that there are that, that that this is how power where power speaks to itself where power ferment ferments its relationships where power stratifies away from ordinary people and i think that what that's created as you say is that the reason that it's not regarded that the the, the positions of leadership are not cons regarded as job dirty jobs that have to be done but plum jobs that are to be prized is because because of corruption, of fundamental corruption. A lot of the content we do on YouTube is about, you know, about American politics because that's what sort of what drives it. And let's face it, it's still the, the it's still Rome. And like when we when we talk about 
Congress and the number of Congress people that invest in stocks and shares that they regulate, the way that that's proven, the amount of lobbying money that goes in. It's kind of wearying to read. And the distinction between the Democrat Party and the Republican Party just becomes redundant. And the, the fact that it creates so much discourse and static and friction seems sometimes absurd when you look at what's systemically happening in those countries. I think that you, you are right when you say that what's needed is a class of politicians and for a moment with, say, the squad and AOC, you feel like, oh, well, okay, these are sort of ordinary people that have risen to prominence. Could this represent a change? But it feels to me that these things are largely symbolic and enough, and I don't mean symbol in a good way. I mean symbol more like gesture. And... Yeah, I, I I personally feel that democracy has to be something that people feel in their lives, that democracy is something that affects them, that people are well, invited. What do, what do you want to do? How do you see this? Like, I'm talking about populism, Giannis. I'm talking about revivifying our, revivifying and atrophying an atrophying set of systems by empowering people, meaningfully and seriously empowering people. And to do that, the left has got to regain its principles and, as, and it seems in a large part, get over what appears to be a, um, a an evident contempt for the people that it was supposed one at one time to represent and no longer does anything of the sort i feel like that there's a, there's a lot of fear around those ideas because i think on some level people have do not trust the populare people do not trust the populace and you know that that was somehow solidified around um trump and around brexit it became ever like the, the, the sort of moment of optimism around the movements that you're directly involved in faded certainly there was no like love lost in the media around it i'm reading you're familiar i suppose with thomas frank and his work on his current his recent book on populism and he's coming on here next week i think and he talked about those sort of agricultural movements in the 1930s in america where the term populism came from i i i wonder what your thoughts are on and because you know corbyn was a populist movement bernie was a populist movement but and, and ultimately both were done for by their own party or the media or a combination of both, which amounts to the establishment. Uh, I wonder what your thoughts are on on populism. Well, I don't like the word um, because in my mind, populism is to you know promise uh, all things to all people uh, and to use the power that the people give you to turn against them. Uh, that's why I, it's a question of semantics. Um, you, you may you may very well be meaning something else by populism. I want us to be popular, <laughs> but I don't want populism. In other words, it's important to tell people uh, that, you know what, there's no silver bullet. Um, if you want to side with us, if, I if you want us to change this world and make it a better place and a sustainable place, both socially and environmentally, you know, there's going to be blood and tears. Winston Churchill, the speech. It's not going to be smooth saying, you know, vote for me and, uh, you know, we will introduce legislation that will make everybody tall, blonde, and blue eyed. No, um, it, it is going to be suffering because the, the, a revolution means that there's going to be some cost, right? Um, and so that's for me is not populist. Uh, populists promise all sorts of things. Um, I think we need to be honest uh, and, and, and to convince people that the price is worth paying. It's an investment to the future of humanity. Uh, 
Um, and, and I'll be very frank here, Russell, because I think that we of the left, we must start speaking against, again, again, not against, again, um, the language of, um, of capitalism. Yeah? We should aim at the heart of the beast. You know, it's not just a question of inequality, of justice, and so on. There are very clear demarcation lines here. The first thing we need to do, we need to change corporate law. You cannot, yeah, you cannot change the world. You cannot contain the Tony Blairs and the revolving doors between politics and the corporate world without changing the corporate law in a very simple way. One employee, one person, one share, one vote. End of story. In the same way that when, you know, in politics, you cannot buy shares. You cannot buy shares in the political system. You have one. You are born at the age of 17, whatever, 16, you get one vote. You have one share in our democracy. You cannot sell it, you cannot rent it, you cannot buy it, you cannot, um, you know, wager it. Um, you have it, you use it, uh, thankfully, or hopefully you use it if you're not a pathetic. Um, and, and that's the way it should be with corporations. You, you enter your corporations like, you know, enrolling at university. When you get a library card, which you can use to vote in student unions elections, to get books out, to, to register on the computer network, eh? you can't buy it, you can't sell it, and you hand it back when you leave. So imagine a world where corporations operate like that. That would see, immediately turn them into cooperatives. Um, okay, it's still market-based. You can have you know, co competition between different companies and so on, but they belong to their employees. End of story. End of story. Number one. Number two, end banking. Just end commercial banks. Not through Stalinist decree that, that, that bans them. I'm a liberal. I'm a libertarian, actually. I'm a libertarian communist. So what this means is, you know, let the banks do whatever they, whatever they want. But imagine if tomorrow morning the Bank of England, the Bank of England, the Central Bank of the United Kingdom, in your case, the European Central Bank, in my case, the Fed in the United States, were to give every resident in the UK a digital bank account, which they can do, they can do in, you know, in a week. You know, you, you, you have some kind, you know, your tax file number, your tax file number becomes a bank account. <laughs> and you can put all your money there, you get a PIN, and through some app on your phone, using the systems of the, of the Bank of England, you can pay for your coffee at Starbucks, or you know, make any trans transactions you want. Suddenly, you don't need a bank account, right? Now, to make any payment using you know, plastic money, you need to have an account with Barclays, with Lloyds, and so on. That gives them an exorbitant monopoly over the payment system of society. So, you know, don't ban them, just give everybody a digital wallet with the Bank of England. Uh, think of these two moves, you know, you could actually legislate them in Parliament after a, a revolution, right? But you could legislate them. One is one person, one vote in corporations, in firms. And the second thing is a digital wallet for everybody. Uh, what will this do? Firstly, you will have no stock exchange anymore because uh, shares will not be tradable. You won't be able to buy them or sell them. You just have one, like, you know, there's no market for student uh, um, ID, ID, ID cards because you cannot trade them. They're not traded. So the stock exchange goes away. Oh, and the banks lose the monopoly over payments. If you take away from the bankers the monopoly of payments and also the capacity to lend huge quantities of money to the rich to buy shares, Barclays is finished. It will simply wither. A Darwinian process, you don't need to ban it, it will shut down, it will have no purpose anymore. Okay, so you know, you, you want us to talk about socialism? Let's talk about socialism. You know, these are grand visions, but 
it is important to have them, you know, and to, and, and, and to, and to fight Tina with what I call Tatiana. Yeah, Tatiana, the, that, that astonishingly, there is an alternative. That's my acronym against Tatiana's Tina. Uh, and I'm not saying that it's, going, it's around the corner and we will achieve it tomorrow. But let's talk about these things, you know, because talking generally about justice and equality and good feelings and love, it's all great, poetic, uplifting. But people that then at some point say, okay, now I'm, I'm, now I'm going to grow up and move to the, to the real world where there are banks and shares and, you know, this is how we, we, we enrich ourselves. Uh, well, no, there is an alternative worth fighting for. Technically, it's straightforward. The world would be a better place. It would be more efficient. Companies would not be large because if you have one share for every employee, then employees themselves would not want to be in a company that has 2,000, 20,000 workers, employees, because it's not possible to, to have proper uh, consultation between them. They would, they would want to split it up. So generally, electric is going to split up. You know, the division that makes washing machines will spin off. The one that makes engines will spin off. Uh, so you have a lot, a, a lot more and less powerful corporations belonging to their workers, and you will not have the exorbitant privilege of big finance. What happens? Now, I've got some big questions now. Uh, yes. like, what, like, what happens at like Tesla and Facebook and Alphabet? You know, like let's face it, it's no longer Carnegie. It's 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 these right. guys. Like, well, what happens with Elon Musk and Amazon and Bezos? What happens? Uh, like on the day one, um, with uh, with a ma having been swept into power under these, because I think about this all the time. I think of the, what, and by the way, what I mean by populism, what and what the word originally means, and before it's ultimate bastardization and um, perjurization and dysphemization. Yes, that's a Greek word, uh, euphemism and dysphemism. Before it becomes dysphemistic, uh, I feel. Um, that what populism means is you, the people, you are right. You are right. Now, I know like that you can't like, you know, with one person, you know, that, that people are limitlessly varied, limitlessly varied. I recognize that. But what I feel like is that they've you see, even when you say your bank account idea, like I know a lot of people that listen to my content will be like, we don't trust the government. They'll switch off our money over as they did in Canada to those truckers, like, you know, that like also people that supported the GoFundMe. They just shut that shit down. They froze people's bank accounts. They said they're terrorists. Bang. Like people are so reluctant. People do not trust the government anymore, um, you know, for, for good reason. Now, you know, possibly that could change if, if under a with a tidal wave of optimism and positivity, new figures emerge in government that replace all those ideas. So this is this transparency. You can, you know, like, like your mentor, Tony Ben, used to say, you know, how do I get rid of you and all of that? You know, if it feels like that kind of democracy where it's like, we don't trust these guys, you, you're out, you know, then maybe, maybe it's different. Maybe it's different. So I know that people like are fearful of centralized power, and that's one of the aspects of socialism that I think like you know sort of carries a great um, one of the many that carries a sort of a lot of freight. Also, um, though, but what sort of turns me on more, to speak bluntly, is the idea of really of disempowering global tech titans overnight with a stroke of a pen. Like, is that, is that what this does? Because it, it breaks down monopolies automatically. What's the impact on progress? What's the impact on entrepreneurship? You know, what the, the, the arguments of the right, how do you counter those arguments? Yeah, great questions. Okay, let's take it one at a time. Yes, sir. Elon Musk and Tesla. 
So if you have one share, one person, one vote, and Elon Musk is indeed this kind of genius, well, the employees at Tesla would vote him in to be you know, a significant manager of Tesla, even once Tesla becomes a cooperative, right? But everybody will have a democratic vote on, on this. It will not be that you know, Elon Musk owns all the votes as it is today. Uh, so yeah, leave it to them. I mean, you talk, you want decentralization. This is decentralization. Let the employees of Tesla, to the extent that he has convinced them, let them convince them, not just own them. <laughs> this is a fundamental difference. Now, when it comes to big tech, uh, big tech like Google, Alphabet, and, uh, Facebook, and so on, uh, how it's not what I've already put on the table is not enough to break them down, because they would still belong to their where Okay having them belong to their workers would be important because let's not forget that Facebook or Meta as uh, Zuckerberg has renamed it. Um, it's remarkable. Compare and contrast Facebook with General Motors or General Electric, the old conglomerates. Of those old conglomerates, 80% of their revenue went to wages. With Facebook, it's less than 1%. Wow. Less than 1% of Facebook's earnings go to the people working for Facebook. If you take Zuckerberg out, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it would be a big thing th that Facebook is controlled by the workers in Facebook, but it wouldn't be enough because, again, it's a very small number of, of people uh, compared to the amount of power that Facebook has over the collective imagination of the world of humanity. But that's that's where I would introduce a third piece of legislation. One was uh, corporate law. The second one would be the you know the digital wallets of the Bank of England or the Central Bank. The third one would be um, transferring property rights over your data, making your data your own. So Facebook, if it wants to use your data, will have to pay for it, and you will have to pay back to Facebook. Uh, you don't get free services because they are not free the price of the free services that Facebook or Twitter or TikTok offer you is your own soul, right? So um, I, I would introduce, um, and I've written this down in my in, in a novel that I wrote last year, that I published last year in, in my blueprint for, the, for an alternative now. Um, so on the, on the one hand, those tech companies will have to pay you small, tiny amounts of money for your data, and you can choose to sell it or not. And secondly, if you want to use their app, you have to pay for it. Again, tiny amounts. And what about people who can't afford it? Well, if everybody has a digital bank account with the Bank of England, then the Bank of England can actually give you a basic income. It's really very easy. They just write down some numbers on your in your digital wallet, and you can use those to pay for your data. Suddenly, you know, and I even came up with an idea of what to call this system, a penny for your thought, you know, small penny, but it stops this supposedly free service, which enslaves us and turns us into the data producers and the capital producers of big tech. Um, and finally, regarding centralization, you mentioned the, you know, the, the various demonstrators in Canada and so on who say, I mean, it is quite appalling that they shut down access to their bank accounts. Just, you know, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm a very strong proponent of vaccination. But, you know, my goodness, you know, this, this, this kind of authoritarianism that slips in as a kind of uh, liberal uh, wave. Anyway, um, this, the answer to that is that, firstly, if you have a digital wallet for everyone, and it, it's based on what's called the distributed ledger technology, let's not get 
to technically here, but it's possible for everybody to know how much money there is in the system. So the authorities will not be able to create money without us knowing. That's a great fear that many liberals, libertarians have, that the government will, the central bank will debase the, the currency by producing too much money. Well, if you have distributed ledger, ledger technology, everybody knows how much money there is there. So, you know, the central authorities cannot, um, you know, pull the wool over our eyes. Uh, and, and the most important and final contribution I shall make to this discussion. You know, I believe in juries, in the jury system. So the central bank has governors, okay? And the governors are answerable to whom? To Boris Johnson, or supposedly to parliament, but that means they're not answerable to anyone. They're only answerable to the financial sector, right? <laughs> uh, but imagine if you had a body comprising citizens selected like juries are through sortition, through lotteries. And you can also say that, you know, these people will be 30 people or 100 people, and some of them will have to be experts in finance. They're randomly drawn from a very long list of people who are experts in finance. Others from locally elected, um, you know, local government. Another bunch from which there is a random draw are just, you know, normal people. Uh, and these people are the, you know, the board to which the authorities of the central bank are answerable, not to elected representatives, because, you know, as the ancient Athenians knew, the Democrats, elections are usurped by the aristocrats. That's why the, the Democrats in ancient Athens were against elections and they're in favor of jury system, jury system and lotteries. So there are answers to these questions, but we of the left have to, um, to move beyond just talking about justice and try to focus in on what kind of world we would want to build uh, and then, of course, once you have that and you have a vision, people can be mobilized to work for it. And then we have another discussion. How do we bring it about? But unless we have this, you know, Tatiana by which to counter Tina, um, mobilization is just going to be piecemeal. You know, we will get together to support the NHS, but not get together to defeat capitalism. That's cool. I really love it when you actually hit us with some brass tax ideas that people can put in a manifesto that people can vote for that people can debate that people can you know, shoot down in flames if it's at odds with their own ideals i like to hear that I, and i also again as someone that's felt at points great not apathy because i'm not an apathetic person disgust with contemporary politics and contemporary democracy like that you know that's that has in the past led me to and sometimes look you know i'm i i'm not you know rushing to the ballot box to vote for boris johnson or keir starmer let me tell you you know neither would i be for you know joe biden or whoever the republicans put up you know like uh, for me i want to feel like oh wow there's a vision there's a sort of a cultural social vision. and these things are pretty challenging because they m mean change for all of us and often they mean sacrifice and this is why i yanis i sort of hold close to my heart and because it is my tendency and we discussed in our first conversation once atheism and i know you're an atheist and i'm a religious person and like but in any event what we need is a sort of a set of a faith and some beliefs and a vision that amount to a kind of a spiritual and sort of sacred understanding and without that without that dimension without that dimension being accessed and activated 
I feel like it, good does not prevail until people ha are enlivened by tr by visionaries. I agree entirely with you. Look, we had this discussion before. Whether you call it God or something else, uh, faith cannot be supported by mathematical equations. You cannot prove that something is right. Um, something is right because it's right. And, you know, it has to be self-referential. I believe in what Iris Murdoch, my favorite author, British author, um, once called the sovereignty of good. Uh, so you may call this God, I call it good, just added the no there. I consider myself to be a devout atheist uh, because I believe in faith. I believe that some things, you know, we have to follow with our hunch. That's why I believe in art and in music, because, you know, reason has limits. It can take us thus far. Beyond that, you know, take, for instance, the case of the Big Bang, right? What was before the Big Bang? This is like asking who created God. It's exactly the same question. It's exactly, it's, there's no difference. <laughs> so um, I'm not even in, interested in discussing our differences. This is, you know, we are spiritual beings, especially the ones who, de who, who de deny that they are spiritual beings. They're just sad spiritual beings. So <laughs> let's get on with it. <laughs> Thank you, Yanis. Yanis, I'll bring our wonderful conversation to a conclusion. Again, as always, with gratitude for your ability to share wisdom, your always innovative thoughts, your compassion and your passion. I value your wisdom and the education I always receive when we have these conversations most highly. I treasure them. Thank you very much. Well, I treasure you like millions of people, especially my daughter. Yes. I will please send her my love and my respect and my regards. Thank you. I shall. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation between Yanis and I. He's a fascinating and experienced man, a brilliant speaker. And I think as we look for new political alliances that are across the political spectrum, this is certainly a person I'll be very much looking to start a band in with. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Yanis Varoufakis. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockies with the hashtag Under the Skin. I'm on tour all over 2022. Go to russellbrand.com for dates and come see me. It's more than a stand-up show. It's, this is a movement. There's meditation. There's breath work. We're going to change the world together in these crazy little Sounds. Also, if you're not meditating yet, go. Uh, you can listen to Above the Noise, my guided meditation here on the Luminary app. Have that, have a little listen to that. And if you enjoyed this podcast, why not listen to Yanis's other episodes? Why, Jen? They might enjoy them, especially the first one. Yeah, I liked that. Yeah, that was we were at Radio X. And he yeah. was there in person, mm, right? Yes, I had to. I was just me and Yanis for a bit. What did you talk about? I got him a glass of water. I really wanted him to order a cappuccino <laughs> because I wanted. To... <laughs> Because you were late and I thought that would take the longest. Mm. You could have encouraged him. <laughs> I'd never met him before. I was terrified of him. Why? Because he looks like a skinhead, even though he's very yeah. left wing. Yeah. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Why Jimmy Dore? The other yeah, one the other recommended. Because he's another socialist. All right. And keep checking my YouTube for new videos every day. Most of all, thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.